Okay, good evening. Um, we can open up our Bibles to book of Micah. Micah. So we just barely, really getting into the book tonight. Realize this, there's a lot of more poet. You didn't realize the Minor Prophets is a lot of poetry. And so it's a lot of thinking through some things. It's very interesting getting through the book of Micah. But um, why don't we pray and then we'll get started. Dear God, we do thank you for all that you've done. Lord, please guide and direct my thoughts and my words. Uh, Lord, please help the message to be clear and to be uh, understood exactly what your word is, uh, what Micah here is trying to uh, point out. God is using him to say, Lord, we thank you for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read the Micah chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. So we'll start out tonight. Micah chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morastite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place, and will come down, and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountain shall be molten under him, and the valley shall be cleft as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria as an heap of the field, and as plantings of a vineyard, and I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof. And all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces, and all the hires thereof shall be burned with the fire, and all the idols thereof will I lay desolate. For she gathered it of the hire of an harlot, and they shall return to the hire of an harlot. So here in this passage, Micah is, during this time, Micah is seeing all that is going on in the time. Assyria is growing in power. The nation of Assyria, you have the Assyrian Empire is growing, and he sees that their spread towards Israel and Judah is part of God's judgment on the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, both of them, for their idolatry. So it is at this time that he speaks up. I mean, thankfully, we find out later that Hezekiah actually listens to his prophecy. But when you're reading this prophecy, we don't know. If you're reading, hearing Micah at this time, you would not know that. But in the first one, he kind of introduces the book, um, the word of the Lord that came to Micah the Morastite in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So here we just see that this book is Micah, it's a prophecy, writing a word from the Lord. He's, he got it. This is definitely not his own words. Um, he's getting this from the Lord, and he's speaking it as he's seeing, because he saw these things. He saw all that was going on in the world at the time. And he saw this is God's judgment, but this is God's word to him as well. And in this passage, though, the main thing, well, I think, actually before that, I should say this. Micah, as we get through it, uh, over however long it takes to get through the book of Micah, it's actually made up of three sermons, which are made up of 20, 19 to 20 sermons. Because it's, a, it's believed it's a conglomeration of different sermons over his life that he made into a, either he or somebody else compiled into a book of sermons, of Micah sermons, about judgments, 
And then at the end of judgment, there's hope. But tonight we'll be talking about the main, you might say the main aspect of this is that God is the only one who gets a high place. So in chapter one, we see in verse two, it's where this, the first part is just the first verse is really just introductory about who Micah is, where he's, we don't really know much about him. But in chapter, in verse two though, it says, hear all ye people. So here in this, this is a poetic prophecy. Micah begins his first message by calling the world to hear, to look on, as it says in verse 3, for behold, the Lord cometh. Look on and hear as God, the accuser, lays out his case against Samaria and Judah. But in particular, he starts with Samaria. So we're just going to look at mainly Samaria tonight. And here in this first sermon, he gives an overview of his case against Samaria. He doesn't get into all the details throughout the rest of the book. He gets into a lot of the nitty-gritty details of what, down to the, down to the details of what they're doing. He just kind of goes to the overall problem in the Samaria and in Judah. And in this case, though, he calls on all nations to look on and hear, because this judgment that is coming on Samaria comes from the God who treads over all the earth. He is sovereign over their nation, too. We see that, the reason we see that is in verse 2, Hear all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you. He's talking to the people of the earth. The Lord from his holy temple, temple, for behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. So he's not even talking about Samaria or Judah just yet. He's saying that you ought to listen because God has authority over you. God has authority over every nation. And here he also uses imagery to show his dominance over all the peoples of the earth. Just as we see in Genesis where God says, let us go down to Babel. It's kind of a, in a sense, a mockery right there. Let us go down. They're trying to build a high tower and God is so high above them. He has to go down to their high tower. And that's the same idea here. He's going down. He's showing his dominance over them. He comes down out of his temple, out of his palace and out of his high place, to their lowly high places. He comes down. So Micah then tells the reader that God is coming down to do what? He's not coming down to throw a party. He's coming down to judge. He is coming down to destroy everything they trusted in and looked to for refuge or provision. So we first saw he's coming down, and that applies to each one of us. We know that God is coming to judge. But, O earth, and all that therein is, let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord, from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountain shall be molten under him, and the valley shall be cleft, as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. So he is coming down out of his holy temple, out of his, that idea their holy temple, depending on, People say it could maybe be a palace because it's showing he's the king of the whole earth. Either way, it's showing his dwelling place, where he rules from. He's coming from there. And he's coming down to tread upon, to show his dominance as a conquering king. We're talking about today's Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and we show victory. Well, even here, God is victorious over these false gods. But... He comes down, and he's going to destroy everything they trusted in. 
in um, verse 4, it says, And the mountain shall be molten under him, and the valley shall be cleft, as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. So these mountains, they'll be molten under him. And we see, so in the way this is set up, it's actually um, the first two statements are then, the first statement is set up with a third statement in that verse. The mountain shall be molten under him as wax before the fire, and the valley shall be cleft as the waters that are poured down a steep place. So these mountains, though, he will melt them. They're, they're places of refuge. They're places of uh, where they go for protection. He's going to destroy them. He's going to level them. And as if you know of wax before fire, that melts very fast. The same idea there is that the valley shall be cleft. And as, as the waters that are poured down a steep place. So looking at that, several different commentators are one that a, really the best explanation of what that is is the picture thereof is that in a valley is where water flows. In a valley at that time is where you had the cattle would go to walk through the valley. And when the water runs down a steep place, it destroys everything in that valley. And the people that are trusting in these lowly valleys for their sustenance or trusting in these mountains for their uh, victory, for their fortification, God destroys them. He levels them quickly, too. God does not do it slowly. He comes down and swiftly and completely destroys their, their gods. So we are told God is coming down. Because, so then we see with this, um, he's accusing. God is the accuser here. He's laying out his case. And then he says why he's laying it out. Because Jacob did something. He says, for the, he, or he's, he says all this, the reason also that he's coming down and judging is for the transgression of Jacob is all this. And for the sons of the, and for the sins of the house of Israel. It is because of their sin that God is judging the earth. It's because of Jacob and Israel. It's because overall, just Israel as a whole, their sins, God is judging the earth. And he's telling the people of the earth to look on. Look, see, because God is judging. We see later on, and I'll get ahead of myself, but he does eventually say, God is judging his people. And the idea there is that he, he also will judge you. So listen, pay attention, heed. And it says, for the transgression of Jacob. Transgression is the idea of a is a rebellion or a purposeful going against. It, and then sins is kind of the idea of a care, more of a carelessness here. The idea they're talking about here. And so you have blatant, outright, rebellious sin. And then you have the sins of the house of Israel, of, as we see, it uses the same phrase in a moment, but you have the sins that they may not have been outright rebellion, but you can be sinning and being careless. So we see that, though, with in the next verse, in the, as anyone ever would say, if someone lays charges against someone, or says someone did something wrong, you would say, well, what did they do? You don't just stand there usually and if you're making a case and just someone makes an accusation, you take it. Well, God can, but he's making an accusation and giving a reason. Then, And as any of us would say, we would say, what, what did he do? What law has the defendant broken purposely or carelessly? What have they done? So he says, what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? 
And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? So here, the details of the crime are not outlined. We will get to that as we go through the book of Micah. He gets into a lot of that they're exploiting the people and things such as that. But what is the overall crime? The crime is the capital cities of Israel and Judah. This probably, today, this message probably wouldn't go over too well, preaching directly at the capital cities or the leaders of a nation. But that's what he's doing. How can the capital cities be their crimes? How does that, does it make any sense? How could just a city be a crime? Well, of course, we know it's poetry, so he's not saying the buildings and all that did something wrong. It's the leaders of the country. The crime is that these cities had not become, they were physical high places. That's the interesting thing of all the imagery going on in this poetry is these are physical high places. These are actually mountains. That's where people built cities is on mountains, on high places. And these were not only physical high places, but they had also become spiritual ones as well. And not good high places where they were worshiping the one true God. They were worshiping their own false God. They were worshiping their own system of worship. And these governments tried to replace God themselves. They tried to become their own God to their, to their people. We see a God has the authority to take and do with his people as he pleases. And we see that is what the government is doing here. As we get throughout the book of Micah, they talk about he's, they're stealing from people. They're using them for their own gain. Sounds like a government we have now. Um, But they try to become their own God to their people. And he was saying, God, God is going to come down and destroy. Because there is only one room for one God. Only room for one true high place. They had tried to become their own God to their people. They had introduced new idols to pull people away from the God who they had made a covenant with. God had made a covenant with his people. He made a bond, a, more than a contract, a close bond with them. And they had decided to break that. Purposefully, but also we see in Samaria, they had purposely done it, and Judah not so purposely. They had introduced new places of, and methods of worship in their capital cities. The leaders of the nation had led the people into idolatry, and so he was going to deal with them. And we see some of these things that they did. Transgression of Jacob, is it not Samaria? So what do we know in Samaria that went on? We know a Jeroboam, and he brought in the calf worship as a way of rebellion to keep the people from going back to Judah. He wanted to do things his own way. He figured that he could keep his country together if he kept the people coming to his high places. So they were very blatant, and Jeroboam led the nation in outright idolatry, blatant idolatry. And as you go through the northern kingdoms, northern kings, there's no good northern king. But Jerusalem, though, on the other hand, was more, they were more, the main aspect then was they're more careless. They did not make a point that God was number one. Because interestingly, they say, what is the high place of Judah? It doesn't say some random city where they are all going to. It says the high place is Jerusalem. The rulers 
in Jerusalem had turned this city that was supposed to be a city of worship to God, worship of the one true God. It was where the temple was located. And God has to come down and destroy that city. And it's definitely not because they were going to the temple. And if it was, they were being, it was, there was some sort of, we're not here yet, but we know if, if you look in Ezekiel, which is later on, but at different times, there was a lot of hypocrisy going on. There was a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that they were making it look like they had a sense of, re, of true religion, of following the one true God, but they weren't. But this carelessness had to be dealt with. God didn't say, oh, well, only the people that are outright rebels are, I'll judge. No, passive sin is still sin. And so she may not have, she didn't pursue her idols as her sister Samaria did, as blatantly. Of course, we do know that there were idols, but they wasn't as blatant. She is nonetheless still guilty. And even in her worship in the temple, she was living a life of hypocrisy and theft. As we see throughout Ezekiel and other areas. And throughout the rest of the book, Michael details more of her sins, which were summed up in using her position for her own gain, rather than to lead her people into obedience to God. So they had, like I said, as Micah gets further into the book, there are areas where he says that they were stealing from the people, they were using the people for their own good, as opposed to lead them to righteousness. They were leading them to unrighteousness, whatever would help their own fill their pocketbook. And so God, though, as the accuser and as the judge and executioner, he tells the people of the earth, so we've seen, he said, listen up, everybody. Listen up, all the people. God is sovereign over you. God is coming down. He is going to judge, and he is going to judge specifically Jacob and Israel. But watch out, because he's coming to be a witness against you as well. And then he points out the sins of Jacob. It was their leaders, the sins of Israel. It was their leaders. And so... He told the people of the earth that he would now do Samaria because of her transgression. He would lay, utterly lay Samaria waste because of her sin. He would turn her city into a, the idea there is a, as a heap of the field, as a heap of rubble, and as plantings of a vineyard in verse 6, is basically, as one person put it, basically the city would be made into a heap of rubble, which is to be destroyed. And then the rest of the outlying of the city would just be raised, become ground that could be planted. And then right after that, he says, I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley. So the valley around, all the rubble would just be dumped into the, would be dumped into the valley. And so if you see the irony here too as well, this high place, God levels it. It is no longer a high place. Because as we said, there is room for only one high place. And God gets that high place. And he would utterly lay waste to them. He would turn their city into a heap of rubble in the field, and the rest would be just as a farmland with a pile of rubble in it, basically. Basically a big farmland with a pile of rubble in it. This is what God would turn their beautiful city of Samaria into. Then the stones will be used to fill in the valley. So he said he would totally destroy the place and set up against God. And also with this, you see with a... 
there's a lot of different things going on. You see that also with him just tearing down the high place, it wouldn't be just a spiritual implication, but also the physical fortification of being the mountains were a place of fortification, safety from the outside world. Well, when he leveled that, there was no safety. They could not trust in their physical mountain anymore. He would totally distrust, destroy the place they set up against God. He would destroy, we said, their high place. He would also destroy the fortifications. He would totally knock down the high place, level it, and so that only he could be the one true God. And then the other irony goes on, and he said in verse 7, And all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces, and all the hires thereof shall be burned with the fire, and all the idols thereof will I lay desolate. For she gathered it of the hire of an harlot, and they shall return to the hire of an harlot. So he would completely ruin their idols, their what they were worshiping. Which I didn't, re- I didn't realize this, but actually, was when I was studying this, there was they said all of the words for idol in the Bible are never actually idol. It's usually images, or it's worshiping the object. Maybe it's a piece of wood, or but they were. It was just showing that whatever actually what they were worshiping was the things, was those things, and God was going to remove whatever they thought was important, whatever they held before God, God was going to totally remove it and destroy them, destroy it. But he would not just remove it, he would make a laughing stock of it. All the gold and silver that had been collected either through exploitation of people by stealing it from their own people by um, other means or by the rewards of temple prostitutes, it would be destroyed. It would be laid waste. It would be stolen again by the Assyrians to be used in their own adulterous practices and to build their own false idols. And God was going to make a mock of them. He was going to destroy their idols because there's only room for one God. There is only one God. He was going to destroy their high places because there's only one God. And in that, he was going to make them look like fools. The imagery here is important as well. Samaria and Jerusalem were the leaders of God's chosen people. And his people were committing, as you see in Hosea, the book of Hosea, spiritual harlotry by serving other gods. They were not committed to, their, to God, their spouse, who had, com- who had covenanted himself with them. They were going around with any other lust they could fulfill on their own. These gods would do nothing to save them. These false idols, these pieces of wood and whatever other items of stone was all they were. In fact, because they forsook God and followed these false gods, they would serve these false gods in a foreign land, which would be dominated by the same false deities who did nothing for them and would do nothing for the Assyrians. So they'd be sent, as some people right here, and Jameson, Fawcett Brown, quoting several people, said, Israel gathered or made for herself her idols from the gold and silver received from false gods. As she thought, the higher of her worshiping them, and they shall again become what they had been before, the higher of spiritual harlotry, that is, the prosperity of the foe. 
who also being worshipers of idols will ascribe the acquisition to their idols. And as uh, another person explains it, the offerings sent to Israel's temple by the Assyrians, whose idolatry Israel adopted, shall go back to the Assyrians, her teachers in idolatry, as the hire or fee for having taught it. And then in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, it said, Since Israel had committed adultery with temple prostitutes, the temple gifts would be smashed by the Assyrians and used again by them in their prostitution. Becoming captives of Assyria, the Israelites would be forced to continue in a prostituted relationship. They had sought out other gods, so now God would send them away to lands where foreign gods were worshipped, giving them what they evidently wanted. Which sounds interesting with Romans 1, where God gives you over to your lusts, pursuing them. But we see right here, though, these things that they were looking to, they were looking for their high places, they're looking to their images. God says he's going to beat them in pieces. The hires thereof shall be burned with the fire, and all the idols thereof will I lay desolate. For she gathered of the hire and harlot, so she gained it by harlotry, she gained it by stealing, she gained it by ill means. And guess what? Assyria would come and do the same thing to her. Take it from her. Take all those things she trusted in and looked to. And then they would be taken to Assyria to worship those gods as well. Because it is God who is ultimate and not the false deities of Assyria. And then verse 8 and 9, which kind of goes then into the Judah, or the, uh, the sermon, you might say, to Judah, which we'll look at that next time. But we see, though, how Micah then says, I will go, I will howl, I will go stripped and naked, I will make a wailing like the dragons and mourning as the owls, for her wound is incurable. For it is come unto Judah, he is come unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. So let's look at some lessons that can be learned from this. The main idea, though, the main thought, is any high place set up in place of the true God will be torn down and destroyed with everything that it represented, as well as being an example for all to see. Because God is the only one who gets a high place. So God is the sovereign. First, lessons to be learned, is God is the sovereign God of all people. He's not just the sovereign God of us that are saved. If someone is not a believer here today, he is your sovereign God as well. There is no person who is beyond his authority. That's what we mean by sovereign. You don't, he is over you. He has every right for you to, you have, you ought to obey him. No one gets to set up his own way or place of worship against God. No person whatsoever. There is only one God, and he is first towards his own people, but also the rest of the world. He doesn't leave the rest of the world and just talk to his own people. He says, hey, everybody, listen up. This is an example to the whole earth. I'm judging my people. Look on. Because you also, in a sense, or everyone in a sense is his people, not in the sense of believers or saved or uh, how do you say covenant people or whatever the term you want to use but every he has made everyone and so you are ought to obey him so no idea thought pattern etc any other thing you may think of 
is allowed to exalt itself against God. As it's, uh, Paul said, every thought must be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And so, but since God is sovereign over you and I and all people and over believers and unbelievers, that means you and I have the right, right may not be the right word, but the, uh, the ability, the authority to preach the word of God and tell them that God is sovereign, that they ought to obey God in every aspect of their life as well. They ought to come to him and submit to him. So we can stand up confidently and say, thus saith the Lord, any of these new issues that go on in the day, they can be addressed and should be addressed. And God expects us also to trust him in every aspect of our lives. Not trust to those other things. And with this, we can also preach that God is the judge of all the earth. Today is Resurrection Sunday. And Resurrection Sunday came after the crucifixion. Jesus died on the cross. He submitted to the judgment of God. Because God is the judge of all the earth. You and I deserve judgment. That is what Micah is saying. You and I deserve judgment. And we ought to tell others, tell those who, believers, unbelievers, that God has every right to tell them what to do. And to judge them when they do not do it. And number two, second lesson to be learned, is God will destroy everything man trusts in that is not God. He has the authority and the prerogative to take down any and every high place or idol that we set up before him. Nothing is outside of his purview. He can, anything he wants to in your life that you have set up in front of him, because even as Christians, and these were the people of God, Jacob and Israel, they were God's chosen people. They had things that they had set up in front of the one true God. And we, as believers, sometimes we do that ourselves. Whether that is, we see in this passage several things that were set up. Political entities. You had um, people who were willing to follow Samaria and follow Jerusalem and trust in them and lead them. And these, we are not to trust in them. We're not to trust in the high places of Washington, D.C. or Salt Lake City for us. We're not to trust in them. That doesn't mean we don't work. That's a different message for a different time. But that is, we ought to be involved in those things, but we do not trust in them. Because God is God. He is in control. He is the one who's going to protect us. We also cannot trust in the spiritual leaders. They are not the ones or God, God has given them a lot of they, a lot of responsibilities on their shoulders to preach the word. But ultimately, each one of us has to come to God and see the truth in Scripture ourselves. These people in Jerusalem and Samaria, we know that in the Old Testament, there were people that had not bowed the knee. And so their spiritual, we're not supposed to don't look to the spirit. Spiritual leaders, in the sense of for trust, don't trust them. 
<laughs> yes, don't trust them above God. Don't trust them above God. God is, because there's only room for one God. There is only one God, whether you want to say room or not. There is only one God. But there is only room for one God. So whether this is physical blessings and character, physical blessings either, don't trust them. As we saw, you see verse 4, they had those beautiful valleys, you had the mountains, and you trust them, God will take those from you. He will pull them out from underneath of you. Don't trust them. Trust God. Whether this is, you don't trust your own strength. We saw they had their mountains, their fortifications. They th- and God took those from them. Don't trust them either. Whether Don't trust your own lusts. Don't look to your own lusts for, for pleasure, for enjoyment, or for satisfaction above God. That's what we see in verse 7, these um, idolatrous practices. A lot of harlotry was involved in a lot of idolatrous practices. Prostitution, living up your own lusts is what it was. And putting those lusts, those desires, pleasures, before God. Don't put those desires before God. No desire is better than what God has for you. And then God will also not be replaced by any of these. He will not be replaced. He is a very jealous God and is jealous of his honor, jealous of his place, his high place, his temple, his Nobody else gets to come in and make one instead of his. And number three, because God judged in the past, he will also judge in the future. We see that in verse eight, or we see that several times throughout here. We see in verse two and three and four, where he's talking to the people to pay attention. And then we see in verse eight and nine, Micah, the reason he's weeping is because he knows that Judah's next. Because God judged Samaria, and he knows that next coming up on the line is Judah, because Judah's going the same direction. He knows that because God doesn't change, he will also judge Judah for her sins. And so that applies to each one of us, because God has judged. He has not changed. He hates sin. He's always hated sin. He, only, he always will be jealous of his place. And so when we try to take it, he will come and judge. And so then, number four, we also ought to heed the judgments God brought on his own people. This judgment on his people is a witness against others as well. It's a judge, this judgment is a witness to us. And 1 Peter 4, 17-18 says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? And we see these things. And if we do not want judgment on our lives because of something that we have put above God, put in the place of him, whether it is a person, a maybe it's a really close person, family member, or some the politicians or something... We must, before and God says he will judge, we must 
Judge ourselves. Take care of it. As people of God, we must do that. Because judgment must begin here at the house of God. Before it begins, we expect the world to change. We must change. So number five, God will hold leaders accountable in how they lead their people toward or away from God. Because God, there's only one high place. There is only one God, and he will not be replaced. And so if you lead your people, whether purposefully as Samaria or haphazardly as some of the kings of Judah and Jerusalem, you are still held responsible. God will hold you accountable for how you lead your your people, whether you're a parent, a father, or um, a deacon, or a pastor, or whoever. God will hold you accountable. And so if you are an unbeliever, listen to the judgment God brings on those who exalt themselves against him. Listen to that because he will not hold back his judgment he didn't hold back his judgment on his son now we know that was willingly there's a lot involved but still he because of sin he would not hold back judgment on his son so who do you think that you who do deserve sin he will not judge because someday there will be a day of judgment there will be a day of reckoning you will stand before god and there will be no if and buts about it, you'll, it's, it's done by then. If you are a believer, what have you set up before God? What in your life, whether family member, whether it's some uh, thing you enjoy doing, or whether it's some the government, um, and whether that is you're actually trusting the government to do well, or you're just so scared because the government's going awry, and if the government doesn't change, then our lives are a, a wreck. Well, either way, you're still trusting it. What have you set up before God? What have you put as a high place, as an idol, as an image that is not God, in the place of God? And also, if you are a leader, whatever capacity of leadership God has placed you in, even if it's a really in a business situation and you have fellow, fellow employees, well, you know God. In a sense, you can lead them too. It's a little different, but you still have an influence on them. And what influence you do have? How to use it. So if you're a leader, how are you leading your people toward trusting God? Or are you exploiting them, as we'll get to later with Micah? Are you using them for your own gain and leading them into unbelief and away from God? Because as Samaria and as Jerusalem were held accountable, and as the rest of the earth was held accountable, you also will be accountable for how you lead others, for what you put before God because there is only room there's not room for anything else before God God is the only one as I said gets a high place he's the only one who gets a temple who gets a worship place because we only worship him and no one else so let's remember that and let's pray